Hello there and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, along with a collection of disembodied voices on tape, including Jennifer Walsh, who's here to retrace her first steps back into mid-pandemic Bloomsbury. German director Helena Dershke is here to talk sexism, spiritualism and the never-quite-lost art of Hilmer Af Klint. Paddy Woodworth reveals his latest addition to the Naturalist bookshelf and Rob Long comes not to bury Hollywood, but to notice something in the air, and getting us rolling a casual inquiry. Which tier are you in? It's a question that people up and down England have been asking each other a great deal recently. But are they all bogged down in unnecessary numerical malarkey? Jennifer Walsh suggests in her latest pandemic diary there are other, perhaps more improvised, perhaps more accurate ways of knowing just how the virus is spreading in your manner. This week, London emerged from its second lockdown into Tier 2 restrictions. The main way that I distinguish Tier 2 from lockdown is that Pennies, or Primark, as they insist on calling it over here, is open. Sure, the bookshops and cafes are open again, which is wonderful. But ultimately, you're either in a Pennies tier or a non-Pennies tier. It's the simplest way to think about it. I go into central London to run some errands. I haven't been in the centre of the city since the beginning of October. In fact, it's been so long since I used public transport that I've lost my Oyster card. Walking to the tube, I see people in winter coats digging into full English breakfasts at tables outside Greasy Spoon cafes. These cafes have never had tables outside before. This isn't cafe culture in the way we normally speak of it. It definitely isn't Parisian. There's something interesting going on here, though. It has a coziness to it. I wonder how it will evolve. Central London is very quiet. All this year... We've been trying to describe how the essential experience of the city has changed. We talk about how it's deserted, or subdued, or lonely. I'm walking through Soho on a weekday afternoon, but it feels like it's dawn on a Sunday. Or it feels like when everyone left town during the Olympics. I'm a big fan of the writer William Gibson, and his last two novels are partly set in a London many years into the future, after a conglomeration of apocalyptic events, Gibson calls it the jackpot, have left the city severely underpopulated. That's the way London feels to me right now, post-jackpot, even with pennies open. Places of worship are open under Tier 2, and by places of worship, I mean bookshops. I go to one of my favourite, the London Review Bookshop, and oh, what joy to see so many books. 
What joy to be able to buy a cup of tea in their little cafe and sit reading a Kevin Barry short story that's set in the town my mother lives in. They're doing their absolute best in the cafe. The tables are widely spaced. The door to the courtyard is wedged open. A faint smell of disinfectant fills the air. There's only room for a few people. There's open space where there would normally be people and teapots and books and conversation. Those few of us lucky enough to get a table sit in our coats, clutching takeaway cups for warmth. The dominant feeling for me, though, is that we're in a cafe which is closing early because it's about to host an event. The furniture is being rearranged, the layout rethought. Something bigger is about to happen, something different to normal operations. And I think about what that might be. Jennifer Walsh exploring post-jackpot London there, and the music was Tottenham Court Road Rhapsody by Jennifer Walsh. The first abstract painting by Hilma Af Klint arrived into the world several years before those of her more celebrated male contemporaries, such as Vasily Kandinsky. But that story is a little tricky to tell, not least because Af Klint painted her egg tempera images at the dictation of celestial beings with whom she was in regular contact. Awkward. And add to that the fact that Af Klimt's works exist outside the art market, she wanted her paintings kept and exhibited together, and a dash of sexism, and you start to see why it was long after her death that Hilma Af Klimt began to materialise in art history. The artist's story is told now in a new documentary, Hilma Af Klimt, Beyond the Visible, by the German director Helena Deschke, who talked to Culturefile about telling an inconvenient tale. One of the reasons that uh, comes across in your film that uh, she hasn't been exhibited more widely, we'll say, is that somebody says uh, the pictures don't work as abstraction. You know, there's some there's some technical um, hurdle that they don't manage to overcome. I was addressing the MoMA actually to get an interview with them or one of the curators who excluded her in their show uh, to ask for the reason. They, they said it, it, it doesn't work like abstraction, <laughs> which is really funny. And, you know, I thought, oh, God, that's so, such a pathetic argument. It's really pathetic because when you how can they say something like that? They say that because she has, of course, some floral ornaments in it. You can see probably something that we would call flowers. But that for me as a person who was. Uh, who's not part of the art historical context, let's say. I'm not an art journalist. I am not working for a museum. This is a very, very strange argument. Because in the end, when you look at her pictures and somebody comes into a museum, you would, of course, say that's an abstract painting. 
because it's not a portrait or a landscape, it's an abstract painting. Now they're making rules, you know, tiny little rules that they say, oh no, but if there's something like a flower in it, then it can't be abstraction. Who cares? Who, I mean, really, who the hell cares? Personally, I have to say, now I have said it very loud in my film and very clear. I'm not interested anymore. <laughs> I'm not interested in art history. But there is, of course, a reason why I said it. And I had to make this point. Because if we wouldn't have said it, nobody would have listened. Then, then the MoMA and everybody else would have said, mm, okay, yeah, yeah. Now, I don't think Hilma of Klin's paintings belong just into a museum. I would build for her a place. She was thinking of a temple. I would build a place for her. Um, but that's probably another topic. But uh, in the end, that, that is the reason why I included this whole question of who was first painting the first abstract painting. One of the th reasons why MoMA mightn't uh, pay attention to her is because their holdings don't involve Hilma. They have a lot of other paintings by other people and it sort of disturbs their work, not just art history, but their collection becomes uh, impaired in a way. I mean, this was shocking for me to know because I didn't know that. Obviously, a museum just shows or likes to show what it owns or likes to show, let's say, collections by people who probably will donate this collection to the museum. This is something how it obviously works. Okay, maybe you can't blame them, but we have to make this uh, clear that just to see it. But because for me as a visitor, when I come as a visitor to a museum, I thought they're going to open the world for me. But obviously they're just opening reality and not the world. So it's just reality. Right now, everybody thinks, okay, we have to make a woman show, and then it's a woman show. For example, there have been many exhibitions with Hilma of Klint, even smaller ones, not solo exhibitions, and they never showed Hilma of Klint with Kandinsky and Mondrian, just in the 80s back then. Why not? I mean, there was an exhibition here in Munich in, in, in Germany, and they uh, showed her with, with two other women spiritual women. I mean, this is also something like a category where you think, oh, please, what is a spiritual art? Isn't art always spiritual? Isn't life spiritual? I mean, I don't need those categories, but that is really dangerous if you just make, now we, ha we are showing women, you know, like Artemisia Gentileschi, I think she is shown in London right now. I, I made this visible in the film just to show so many names of women. Some of them are known, some of them are not so known. But it's very tiring. I have discovered that I have to discover myself, the biographies of these women. You know, it's very tiring. I always have to, oh, that's interesting. Where can I see this art? And then you have to look it up. And it's really, yeah, it's hard work. It's not that you can buy a bi biography or you can see a film or you can, you know, hear something in the radio about them. And of course, there's as many men, probably, you know, who have been forgotten. Uh, this is also something. But, but that was, of course, uh, included so many women because here we have a lot of work to do. Because, actually, I thought always feminism is something temporary. I, 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 I hoped that feminism is something that, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have to discuss in the year 2020 anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You sort of hinted it there, but one of the dirty words is spiritual. 
in a sort of secular modernist world, people are a little bit uncomfortable with the idea that uh, she was trying to express a kind of cosmology, a kind of spirituality through the paintings. For me, it was never a problem. It didn't even occur to me that this could ever be a problem. Um, I mean, for an artist, for, for, yeah, in reality, it is always a problem. But for an artist, I thought this can't be a problem, but obviously it was. That is one of the reasons why I, I'm showing, why I'm talking in the film about spirituality after half an hour. That was one of my decisions that I made because I wanted to take all the fear away. And uh, because I know that people are intimidated probably a little bit or, you know, they, they think, oh, what's that strange thing? And, and you're, you're, you're right, this is a dirty word. That's why I put it a little bit. I thought, okay, first of all, we are, we're talking about nature. This is something very important. It was very important for Hilma F. Clint. And that why, is why it was so important to show nature in the film and also in the way I tried to show it in abstract forms and in macro frames that we... We just show details of a flower or something. The question is, how do you look at things? And Hilma Afklind, how was she looking at things? So if you discover uh, what is going on in this physical world around you and all these discoveries have been made around 1900, everybody was aware, aware of it. It's not like nowadays, nobody is aware of it. But we wouldn't sit in front of our computers if quantum physics wouldn't have been if the quantum physics wouldn't have been discovered in this way. Uh, so um, this is something that was part of her life, and she, she thought, okay, let's see. So probably that's just the half truth. of prob Probably reality is just half of the truth. Of course, now people try to make this something, yeah, something dirty or something stupid or, or as I said, a crazy witch. That is, it's, it was so easy to make her crazy, but Kandinsky is a genius, of course. He can write the spiritual and art um, and is completely sane and a very, you know, uh, rational artist, but Hilma of Clint is in, insane or what. It has a lot to do with, with our thinking. This is something Hilma Afklund was very aware of, that our thinking is making our reality. We can't get rid of these old pictures that had been given to us, let's say, by our parents, grandparents, and grand-grand-grand-grandparents. So you think a woman has to be like that, a man has to be like that, and that's how you grow up without, you know, knowing that this, those pictures really exist in your head. And that is, of course, one of, uh, yeah, and that is one of the reasons why we need more stories like that, you know, like this to tell, to, to say, you know, whoever thought in a different way and the achievement was fantastic they 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 coped with with reality and said okay this is something that i see but probably there's something different to it and everybody did that but it was it is still easier to make a woman someone crazy because she she um because women were crazy. That, what's, that's what they made. They, I mean, around 1900, when women were not allowed to, to let's say, to vote and not to work, may, so many women were bored to death 
that they, of course, they were nervous probably, or they, you know, they, they shouted at their husbands. And what did the husband, he said, okay, you're insane. You have, we have to bring you to some hospital or something. That is what happened. And even if it is not like that anymore, there's, a, there's something latent still existing about this. And um, this is something that you have to, yeah, you just have to address that, I think, uh, more and more again that you that you can change things like that but i have to say you know i i have the feeling nobody was so rational and uh sane like hilma of clint her family uh, this um her her nephew's wife uh she she said in this interview also that she said you know it was so nice to talk with her. She never tried to uh, seduce me, I mean, to, you know, to believe in things. She never s was talking about those things like, oh, you have to believe that. She never did. She just left it, you know. She had enough followers. Helena Dershke there, director of Hilma Af Klint Beyond the Visible, which you can watch tonight or any other night via modernfilms.com, Curzon Home Cinema and indeed YouTube. And next it's time to add another volume to our growing library of the world's most inspiring and even consoling nature writing. And this time Paddy Woodworth fetches down from the naturalist bookshelf Barry Lopez's 1980s classic Arctic Dreams, Imagination and Desire in a Northern Landscape. I have to confess that Arctic Dreams by Barry Lopez defeated me on two or maybe even three first attempts to read it. I was spellbound by the beauty and insight of the opening passages. But then the book slipped away through my fingers, again and again. I can thank lockdown for finally completing the journey. It is so hard, in the lives we used to live, to focus on a long, dense read. But it is so rewarding when we do find the time and peace to do so. That said... Arctic dreams could have benefited from tighter editing. There are tangles of detail, especially about European explorers, that you should not feel too guilty about skipping. Lopez has been writing for a long time, and one wonders how many parallel lives he has led in order to become intimate with so many diverse parts of the world and to comment in such depths on their natural and cultural histories. In an illuminating short blog on writing, he sets out a high stall for his craft. The role of the artist in part, he says, is to develop the conversations, the stories, the films, the music, the expressions of awe and wonder and mystery that remind us, especially in our worst times, of what is still possible of what we haven't yet imagined. And he continues, It is by attending to the responsibilities of maintaining good relations in whatever we do, and he's talking about both people and environment here, I think, that communities turn a gathering darkness into light. A writer for our times, indeed. Light, literally and figuratively, is a recurrent theme of Arctic Dreams. Lopez is fascinated by, and fascinating about, the science of vision. About how, for example, a mirage can make the Arctic sun appear visible, and even rectangular sometimes, 
when it is still well below the horizon. This is a reminder, as he puts it, that the universe is oddly hinged. But he is also entranced by how light affects our psyche, and he finds these effects have very particular qualities in the translucent Arctic air. This is, he writes, a landscape of numinous events, of a forgiving benediction of light, and of a darkness so dunning that it precipitates madness. He opens the book with a passage I have mentioned briefly before on this programme. He is walking among myriad ground-nesting birds, many of which remain stoically quite still at his feet. I gaze down at a single horned lark, no bigger than my fist, he writes, and it simply gazed back. The eggs of a golden plover, he finds, glowed with a soft, pure light, like the window light in a Vermeer painting. I marvelled at this intense and concentrated beauty on the vast table of the plain. And so he finds himself bowing to the birds, in deference to the evidence of life in their nests, because of their fecundity so unexpected in this remote region, and, we're back to light again, because of the serene Arctic light that came down over the land like breath, like breathing. I had never known how benign sunlight can be, how run through with compassion in a land that bore so eloquently the evidence of centuries of winter. Maybe the healthy sceptic in you is wondering if these are not the ramblings of a hippie after one joint too many. But you'll quickly find, reading this book, that they are grounded in a vast knowledge of Arctic biology and of the great sweep of its human history, both indigenous and colonial. The dreams he explores so vividly are twofold. One is the innate beauty of undisturbed landscapes. The other is, as he puts it, a dream gone awry. The long human struggle, mental and physical, to come to terms with the deep north. In the second dream, Lopez's strongest empathy is with the indigenous peoples who have built such subtle and sustainable relationships with this harsh world. But he also fully acknowledges the courage and vision of those Europeans and Americans who have confronted the seductive, often lethal, challenges of the region, though he laments many of the consequences of their arrival. Lopez's dreamscape will introduce you in lively detail to the life cycles of strange animals, like the muskox and like the narwhal, that whale which is a marine prototype for the unicorn. And the dreamscape will spell out dramas, sometimes inspiring, more often heartbreaking, of the encounters between Inuits and colonists. Though he was writing in the early 1980s and sees no shadow of climate change, his Arctic dreaming is keenly aware of the prospect of nightmares. I have only been able to hint here at the great richness of this book. If you can find the time, it will enormously reward your venturing into this luminescent territory. Paddy Woodworth there with his latest addition to the Naturalist Bookshelf, Arctic Dreams by Barry Lopez. And if you'd like to hear the other books in the series, have a look at the Naturalist Bookshelf playlist on SoundCloud.
And finally this time, grab the shaker as Rob Long serves his latest martini shot. This time Rob has been sniffing the wind blowing down Wiltshire Boulevard and detected something distinctly unappetizing in the air. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. A few years ago, a friend of mine, a screenwriter, tried to fire his agent and it didn't go well. After a long and wearying phone call in which the agent tried everything in his bag of psychological tricks, all of them, ping-ponging between crazy pleading and personal attacks, like, you owe me, this is wrong, and I screwed up, I know, I know, give me one more chance, please. And can I just say, this is a very bad career move for you? Well, my friend finally agreed to the one thing he had been dreading, the thing that every single one of his writer friends told him under no circumstances to agree to. He agreed to a meeting. So there he was a few hours later in a conference room of a sleek building in Beverly Hills, surrounded by agents, his agent, other agents. There were snacks and bottles of expensive water, even little chocolate cakes. You know, they they turned it into a whole thing. And in the end, after all of the we love yous and you're important to us's and, and the cakes, of course, he ended up staying put and sticking with his agent. Now, my theory is all he really wanted was the cakes. Now, that was, as I said a few years ago, back when show business was flush and fat and clients like my friend, who I'm pretty sure was a real pain-in-the-ass, high-maintenance client, a daily caller, a needy, what-offer-do-I-have-today kind of client. Well, back then, the business was so good, he was worth keeping. He was really worth fighting for. Business was booming. You could park him in a rich multi-year studio deal, and 10% of that was worth suffering through a little daily whining. Now, an agent friend of mine told me once in an unguarded moment his philosophy about clients, which was this. You don't have to be friends with them. You just have to think they'll be good earners, like pigs or dairy cows. Now, back then, if you want to leave your agent, you had to prepare yourself for the meeting, for the big sequestration in the conference room with the cakes and the PowerPoint presentation. You had to stick to your guns. You had to be willing to endure the painful, awkward, bad feeling in the air as you left the conference room and waited for the parking validation stickers and then headed down to the parking and driving out into the sunshine. But then... There were more cakes because every agency in town would start to court you. It'd be all smiles and conference rooms up and down Wilshire Boulevard as other agents in different offices made the same calculation that your previous agent had. He's a jerk and he'll call me all the time, but he's an earner. And they'd promise you a bigger career and more access and more opportunities. If you were in television, they'd say, you want to be in feature films? We can make that happen. If you were in movies, they'd say, why aren't you a director? We can make that happen. To everything, it was, we can make that happen. Well, as I said, that was then. I mean, I know a writer, fairly well known, a good little earner, who made the rounds of the agencies recently, and when he called his agent to give him the news that he was leaving, he girded himself for the pleading and the pressure and the demand for a meeting. Just get it out, he said to himself. Just say it and move on. Don't let them get you in that conference room. Just keep it short and to the point. So when his agent came on the line, he had his speech down. Short, professional, generous, but composed. He paused, waiting for the inevitable Yeah, his agent said, I kind of see your point. Oh. Oh, well. Oh, great. 
and when he went on the rounds of the other agencies, meeting agents who a few years ago would have staged elaborate conference room love fests, would have produced on-the-floor basketball tickets and first-edition books and back rubs and fancy pens, he found instead a couple of grim-faced guys in suits telling him about the contractions in the business, telling him, want to be in features? We probably can't make that happen. And want to direct? We probably can't make that happen. And you got some money in the bank, right? Because there's like no work out there right now. The happiest agent he talked to all day was the one that he fired. And of course, there was no cake. He had to buy his own, which he ate in his car. Times have changed, but cakes don't lie. And that's all for this week. Next week, it will be Christmas. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. Tight times in the City of Angels, bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. Next week on Culture File, we're going to be as fragrant as a radio show ever was, talking to Harold McGee about his new encyclopedia of olfaction, Nosedive. And the Culture File debate next Saturday is a scent special, featuring scientists, artists and perfumers intent on working out exactly what the nose knows. Smell your radio all next week on Culture File. Till then, bye now.